Rocking the Academy is a podcast that's changing the future of higher education. Your hosts, Mary Churchill and Rupika Rizm, bring you conversations with the very best truth-tellers who are formulating a different vision of the university. Do they rock the boat? Yes. But in doing so, they rock the Academy. On this episode of Rocking the Academy, we are joined by Kelly J. Baker. Kelly is the editor of Women in Higher Education, managing editor of Disability Acts, and a freelance writer with a religious studies PhD who writes on topics including higher education, gender, labor, and popular culture. She is the author of several award-winning books, including Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia, published by Blue Crow Books in 2018. From my understanding, you started out as a scholar of religion. Yes. So how did writing about higher ed become a central part of your work? It's a weird thing, right? Religious studies PhD who works on white supremacists to editor of a feminist higher ed publication. I actually started writing about higher ed in 2013 when I decided to take some time off from the academy. I kind of wanted to understand things about contingent labor and adjunctification, partially because that was part of my story as an academic. Partially, too, because there was this moment in the media in 2013 where people were starting to pay attention to this stuff again, right? To think through adjunct crisis and these sorts of things. So I started writing about that. And then I also started writing about women in higher education, too, so that I took some of the personal experiences I'd had that were not so great and realized that they weren't about me, but they were actually about structural issues in the academy. And so I was able to start reporting on those, too, so that I kind of shifted from that religious studies work to higher ed journalism without actually realizing it. Are there links at all from religion into this? I think that there are ways that we think about religion that are helpful when thinking about the academy. So for me, it was thinking about institutions and what institutions do for us and how they make meaning for us, but also how they shape our lives. It was a very helpful carryover from my understanding of religious movements into higher ed to say, oh, no, this is a system of power relations that shapes us as much as we shape it. So let me take some of that training and then apply it to this different field of study. And I think that's been very helpful to me because um, a lot of time in higher ed journalism, the focus is not so much on the structure, right? It's the focus on the people and what individuals are doing, but it's not a lot on what happens when you become part of a college or university, right? What do you give up to participate in this system? What do you get from it? I really want to listen to what people are saying about the systems that they're a part of. It was very helpful for me to use that PhD training in a really different setting than I would have imagined using it. Like my PhD trained me to be a certain type of thinker, and that helped me move into thinking really critically about higher ed. We see people writing about higher ed and academia as a cult. You know, I actually wrote a piece a really long time ago for the Chronicle Review about how academia is not a cult, right? Like it was my like final frustration with it where I was like, one more time, if they say this, I'm going to lose my mind. And then someone did, of course. And then I was like, okay, fine. I have 2,000 words to say about this. And, and so it's interesting to me, right, that that cult language is so appealing 
in lots of ways, right? That this system takes over us, they're charismatic leaders, we kind of get brainwashed. Yeah, okay, we can understand how academia could maybe work that way. This is a misunderstanding of cult as a terminology that matters in religious studies, but it also ignores the way we willingly participate in something. You know, to say academia is a cult and it brainwashes us, then removes all that agency from us. Oh, we can't be held responsible. We are a bit responsible, not to blame us for what happens to us within higher ed institutions, but to realize that this is a much more messy system than we imagine it to be. I do think we should pay very careful attention to the labor dynamics of institutions, but that we should also think about what do we get from that when we have this kind of training. And for me, it was the ability to build a different kind of career that's still adjacent to higher ed. So we wanted to talk to you because we think you're a truth teller. We think you're rocking the boat and we think you're doing all kinds of great things. So we have a question around when you rocked the boat and it paid off for you professionally. So in 2013, I had a brand new baby, which meant I had two kids instead of one kid. I had decided I was maybe not going to be an academic anymore. And I was really floundering. And I had this moment where I thought, I could play nice. I could do this higher ed writing, but maybe I could pull my punches. You know, maybe I could talk about adjunctification, but maybe not convince search committees to never hire me. And I can remember having this moment where I thought, you know what? I'm just done. I'm done. Playing the game has not helped me. So maybe what I should do instead is write about these harder topics. What is it like to be an adjunct at a university? What is it like to know that the type of body I inhabit as a white woman, as a mother, as a first-gen college student, that all of these things meant that I was treated a certain way in the academy, and often it was not very nice. And so I started writing these pieces that were pretty cagey pieces, where I was like, okay, like we know sexism exists. Let me pull data, right? Because that's the other thing that PhD training does, is I'm like, let me go to studies that we have about this. Let me compile this and analyze it. And I think it really paid off. I never imagined when I started that column, Sex in the Med for Chronicle Vitae, that it would become a book. I'll cover sexism in the academy in 10 pieces or less, right? And we can move on. And then having like this really terrible realization at 2 a.m. one morning that, oh no, I could be doing this the rest of my life. And so I think deciding that I was not going to play the games that people want you to play or comport myself in a way that showed that I was serious, but I was never going to talk about gender, right? Like that we could pretend that I was not a woman. But none of that had paid off for me. So being able to say like, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. That's really how I now have the job that I have. And now I get to edit an awesome magazine that talks about sexism every month, right? Which is sort of a bummer, but it's also very important, right? To show that these are still issues that women are facing, but also there are women that survive and thrive in the academy. Women in higher ed allows me to point out like these amazing women who have done these incredible things because they're just like, too bad, so sad, right? Like, I'm gonna do this my way. I mean, I, I feel like your story of rocking the boat by leaving the academy and, and reporting on the academy and critiquing the academy from this role is fantastic. So based on, on your, your work with women in higher ed, your work on sexism ed, what are you seeing right now as some of the most pressing issues for women that need to be addressed? One of the things that definitely still has to be paid attention to that is not is the way that tenure clocks work to preference men still, and that family leave policies when they are gender neutral also work to help men, not women. It very much is the case that we still have all of these policies in the academy 
that are gender neutral in some sort of way, but that also don't help folks whose families don't fit heteronormative ideals of family, right? Or pay attention to the fact that lots of people have family that we need to care for. And, and it doesn't really pay attention too, to the fact that oftentimes when we're talking about caretakers, we're talking about women. I think the other piece is that we now have major lawsuits um, against so many universities over sexual harassment and sexual assault. And it is clear in a lot of these instances that universities have protected abusers and serial harassers for decades. And only now, post Me Too, are really having to deal with the consequences of this by shelling out a whole bunch of money, but are not necessarily doing the hard work of changing campus culture. How do we prevent doctors on campus from being abusive, right? What are the safeguards we have? What about faculty who we also know are participating in this? So I think that problem is the one that I don't know there's a good solution to because it's so large and it requires really restructuring how universities work so that fame doesn't protect male professors who you know, are world renowned, that that shouldn't be an excuse that they get to be predatory to female graduate students. And that kind of reshaping is hard. And I think universities are still very much embedded in academia as a prestige culture. So we want the people that are most prestigious and we're just gonna maybe overlook the histories that they have. Or if we get them from another institution, we're not gonna look too hard at why they had to leave that institution. There's still this conversation that happens in public culture, but also in university culture, that when we have these allegations, the focus is still on what happens to men's reputations and their careers, instead of paying attention to what has happened to survivors' lives and bodies. So to be able to flip that in a meaningful way, I think would be really useful and a first step. What's been really striking to me is learning that the institution actually really just cares about protecting the institution more so than it does protecting the students yes. and even more so than it does protecting staff and faculty. Yeah. This is the, I mean, and this is the piece why I think it's helpful to think about universities as institutions because eventually we let institutions think for us, right? We give them enough power in how we do this that we then want to protect the institution so that when you allege something, right, or point out the problem, as Sarah Ahmed says, right, you become the problem. A hard lesson that people learn in the academy is that they kind of imagine that their institutions are for them and they are to a certain extent maybe a tiny bit right if you follow along the way you should but if you do anything to step out of the line or rock that boat then it becomes a different conversation these all keep going really dark mary I know, I know, it's I'm funny sorry, yeah. <laughs> So the, the, our final question is around hope for a different future. Yeah. And I guess part of this is like, so what gives you hope for a different future for right. higher ed? But where do you see examples of radical change in this space and, and maybe some models that we would love to replicate or, or support or grow or draw attention to? So I think... I mean, what I should say is that the only way I can do the kind of work that I do on both racism and sexism is that I am inherently optimistic about the ability to change the situations that we're in. So I'm not fatalistic. I don't assume that the world is what it is and we're stuck with it. I'm very much in that kind of Rebecca Solnit, right, that the future is sort of untethered and unmoored and it's always future possibilities, right? And so our actions matter deeply in this. I'm remarkably hopeful due to student activists who are holding campuses accountable, both for their racism, 
for their homophobia, for their sexism, right? Who were saying like, no, we're not going to allow actually this person who is accused of sexual harassment of students to be in this classroom. They we're going to do protests and we're going to actually make a big deal out of this. So the university has to pay attention. And so I think that the ways in which student activists are able to work within these university systems, they have a lot more freedom, I think, than faculty and staff do to determine this culture and to change this culture because faculty or staff are better or worse are part of that institution, right? And part of that structure. Students a lot of times are more free agents. And so they can do protests and they can demand and do these sorts of things. When I see um, faculty and staff setting up petitions about departments that have sexual harassers and how they're not going to send graduate students to them, they're not huge acts of resistance, but it's all these small acts of resistance that pile up to make the larger change. And those small changes lead to that larger cultural change so that those victories always are sort of partial, but they're always changing what our future can be. You have been listening to Rocking the Academy, where Mary Churchill and Rupika Rizm bring you conversations with the very best truth-tellers who are formulating a different vision of the university. Catch more episodes at simplecast.com.